If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Amnesty International was very much against it, the, the tournament being played there. And thousands of people have disappeared, thousands have been murdered, a lot have been dropped into the sea, a lot have been tortured. And uh, it was a question of guaranteeing the safety of the players. That was Brian Glanville talking to us about the history of the Football World Cup. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Since it was first held in Uruguay in 1930, the Football World Cup has gone on to become one of the world's greatest sporting occasions, attracting huge global audiences and creating moments of high drama, while not being a stranger to controversy either. The author and journalist Brian Glanville has reported on 13 World Cups, and his experiences have informed his book The Story of the World Cup, which has now been updated in advance of this year's tournament in Russia. We sent our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, to meet Brian in London and explore a fascinating slice of sporting history. So, Brian, how many, how many World Cups have you reported on 13. over the years? 13, right, OK. Um, which was the first one? 1958 in Sweden. Which of those 13 tournaments do you regard as the best? Well, the one that pleased me most was, of course, uh, uh, 1966, because England okay. won it. Sure. Uh, the best? Be interesting to think. Um, I would think possibly, uh, possibly 1970, possibly 1974. 74 was a great World Cup because it was a World Cup of total football. Sure. Uh, which was the, uh, the rather dazzling fashion of the time with both the Dutch and the Germans playing it. And it ended up with a final between them, which was fascinating, which the Dutch rather threw away. But that, 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 that was a most interesting World Cup indeed. And who were the players that really stood out for you during that tournament? Well, the great players, I think, uh, Beckenbauer certainly, Cruyff, very much so, above all Pelé, uh, who was a 17-year-old absolute phenomenon in 1958. <clears throat> when he got uh, 
three goals in the semi-final and another couple of marvellous goals uh, against Sweden in the final. That was a particularly interesting uh, World Cup for me because uh, I was doing it on a, almost a freelance basis for the uh, Sunday Times before I joined them. Then I had 33 years as football correspondent. But uh, it was particularly interesting for me because the Swedes who got to the final were uh, managed by a great chum of mine, little George Rayner from Yorkshire. Right. And I'd known him since I was living in Rome. And he became manager for a time of Lazio, almost the secondary team in, in Rome. And uh, I, I remember very well, he said, we're the slowest team in the competition. If there was a relay race, Sweden would finish last, but we'll still reach the final. And they did. <laughs> sure. Then they were absolutely massacred in the final, but it was an extraordinary achievement to get there. Do you remember the first time you saw Pelé? It's a very interesting point. I think the, possibly the first time I saw him, he didn't, he didn't have a particularly great game <clears throat> because the Brazilians made incredibly heavy weather of kicking out the Welsh. He scored a very scrappy goal in that game. Uh, he didn't play against England in that group in Gothenburg. But um, he was uh, once, one didn't see him in the semi final, one saw him in the final when he got a couple of absolutely wonderful goals. I think he's the best player I've ever seen. What, what sets him above the other great players for you? His absolute uh, total, uh, t- total talent. I mean, he, although he's about five foot eight, but he was marvellous in the air. He was a superlative ball player. He had a tremendous right foot and a great flair for being in the right place or giving the right ball. He was just a total, uh, almost reached perfection as a player. Right, right, okay. If you could relive one game from all the tournaments you've seen, one that really stands out for you, which one would it be? Well, it would have to be the final when England won it. Okay, what made that so special? Patrick Pope, I'm English. Do you think the ball crossed the line for England's goal? I can't even tell you, even after looking at it time after time after time when I was making the World Cup film or the Moviola, it's very, very difficult to know. There's funny little lines, you know, from, from Baku, wasn't it, who uh, uh, agitated his flag, yes, 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 is across the line. I don't know if he could really have seen it. Uh, it's still a moot point, I think. And who would you say was England's player of the tournament in 1966? Well, Bobby Moore got it, and I think it was right. I think he had a magnificent World Cup. He, he was a fascinating figure. He, was, um, he wasn't a, naturally a tremendously talented player. He started off at West Ham as a young centre-half, but he wasn't very good in the air, curiously enough, although he's fairly tall. And so uh, Ronan Greenwood was manager. He switched him to left half, <coughs> a defensive left half, and uh, he was superb there. He's a magnificent covering player. And he was also capable of uh, hitting long, insidious passes, which he did when Jeff Hurst scored for England against sure. Germany yeah. in the final. And he played even better, actually, in, uh, in 1970, uh, despite the fact that he had um, been banged up. In, uh, in, 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 he was wrongly arrested for the theft of the Tekendama of, of a brooch of a bracelet. And, um, this is in Mexico, isn't this, it? Uh, this, is in Nicole, uh, this is in Bogota. Oh, sure, right, okay. And um, they came, he, 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 he was in uh, sort of cust- private custody. And eventually he was released and uh, turned up again uh, in Guadalajara. Uh, as though nothing, nothing had happened. 
he was an extraordinary man, and nothing seemed to touch him or phase him uh, as a player. And this is really what disqualified him as uh, having any real hope as a manager, because he didn't communicate. And I remember just before he arrived in Guadalajara, Sunday Times got on to me and said, we'd like you to write a profile of him. And I suddenly realized that I'd known him for years. I knew nothing about him. He goes, right. hello, Brian, nice hotel, sleep well, you know, all right. Yeah. And so virtually the person who wrote it for me was Jeff Hurst. I just right. went to him to ask him about it, and Jeff Hurst virtually did it for me. Because he'd known it for years. Would you say that the England team in 1970 was better than the, the, the team that won the tournament four it's years probably earlier? probably just as good, and it was, right. it was unlucky. But in the end, Ramsey, Ramsey uh, he, he, he was an extraordinary manager in many ways. Uh, I think Nobby Styles was right when he said after England won the World Cup, we'd have been nothing without you, we'd never have won it without you. But he made strange mistakes, such as failing in that game, and it was incredibly hot and uh, incredibly uh, difficult to breathe, increasingly difficult to breathe. And he didn't substitute his fullbacks, <clears throat> and uh, that weakened the defence and brought about Muller's winning goal. Sure. <clears throat> um, now, the first modern Olympics took place in 1896. Mm. Why did it take the Football World Cup um, so long to follow suit? Well, I don't think there was any great uh, pressure for it. Uh, eventually, the French, the French were behind almost every uh, innovation. They, they became interested in it, and eventually a, a group of Frenchmen uh, uh, conceived it. And, uh, but there was no great demand for it before then. So who were the real um, driving forces behind the, the tournament? Was it Georges Rimet? Rimet was one of them, certainly, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. after whom they named the trophy, and uh, it was Delaunay. And, uh, and then the first one took place, of course, in, uh, in Uruguay. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why was Uruguay chosen as opposed to, say, one of the European powerhouses? Well, because they, they, they had a very distinguished record in the Olympic football, which right, became okay. increasingly shamateur, and they won the last two Olympic titles. Right, okay, so I gave them quite a strong claim then. Yes. Um, now, the British clubs were quite sniffy about the World Cup in the early days, weren't they? Why was that? Well, the British associations, well, they just weren't very interested. They were fairly insular. Uh, in actual fact, in 1938, after the Anschluss and the Austrians had to draw a drop out, and Spain was in the middle of civil war, so they had to drop out. And uh, the FA were asked if England would like to make up the number. But they refused. Now, when England did finally deign to attend the finals, which was in Brazil in 1950, 50. they famously lost to the United States. Um, would you describe that as the greatest upset in World Cup history? Uh, yes, I think I would. Because people blither on about uh, England in, in the European finals being beaten by Iceland, but the point is that I mean, nearly all those Iceland players were playing for leading clubs in Europe. They, sure. they, they were a strong side. Yeah. Whereas American, uh, the American team was uh, just pick and mix. Um, uh, but on paper, at least, it was an incredibly strong England team. Uh, it had Finney, Mortensen, Mannion, Billy Wright, Bert Williams in goal. Alf Ramsey was playing right back. It should just have walked over them, but they missed chance after chance. Afterwards, uh, 
uh, Arthur Drury, who was the sole selector, and he just put out the, what he thought the best match would be, and it was, said he should have put Stanley Matthews in. But it shouldn't have been necessary. We had Tom Finney on the right and Jimmy Mullen of uh, Wolves on the left, who may or may not have headed a goal which was disallowed. Um, on paper, it was a very, very strong England team indeed. And right, now moving forward to 1962, and I was reading in your book about the, the so-called Battle of Santiago between Italy and the host Chile. Yes, yes. I mean, is that the most violent game of World Cup history, do you think? It's certainly one of them. Uh, I was uh, doing, an interview, doing an interview for an American station like, a couple of days ago, and we were talking about Ken Aston, who... It was uncontrollable. He was a tall, self-regarding, blonde, uh, rather greedy man. Uh, some people thought his referee was an absolute fiasco, but uh, certainly the, 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 there had been a tremendous campaign against the Italians. A couple of Italian journalists had come over and written scathing uh, accounts of Santiago and what the economic situation was and poverty in the streets, etc., I think they criticised the women. Anyway, it, it, it left behind a, a very nasty and a resentful atmosphere, and the Italians were extremely unpopular. Right. And I think it was usually of Italian word strumentalizzato. It was in, instrumentalized in whipping up uh, uh, hostility to the Italian team. And uh, almost as soon as the game began, uh, the word was that the, uh, uh, the Chileans were spitting in the Italians' faces. And uh, Maschio got his nose broken by a punch from Sanchez, and uh, he wasn't sent off. Right. Maschio, in fact, was one of the various South American oriundi who were dubiously playing for Italy. Right. And uh, it, it went absolutely out of control. And uh, Aston then hurt his Achilles tendon, spent the rest of the, of the World Cup prowling around uh, prowling around Santiago. Uh, I, I, I once made a joke about it where somebody picked up and didn't attribute to me in Reader's Digest that Santiago uh, with his fo uh, smog was the only city in the world where you woke up in the morning to hear the birds coughing. And um, now moving forward to the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, mm. do you think the Brazilians were the finest team to have ever graced the World Cup? Well, they certainly had claims to it. Yeah. Uh, they were a magnificent team, but uh, they had their problems along the way. But when it came to the final, um, the, the Italians really almost surrendered. Uh, about the only person who really played very well for them was uh, was Mazzola. And um, although they got a goal early on, uh, they were never really in the game. I thought that was a magnificent Brazilian team, yes, with uh, superb wingers and... Uh, and of course, Pelé had come back to play right, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, headed a, a glorious goal in the first half and laid the ball off twice for goals in the second half. That probably was the best. Though the 58 team was, was, was a very fine one. Well, why do you think South America has been such a powerhouse of, of world football over the decades? What, what makes our players so special? Well, in Brazil, and they, they, the football, international football, only really came into scene and really took wing when they allowed black players in. Because uh, uh, slavery in, in Brazil was abolished very, very late, 
And uh, first of all, there was a lot of prejudice against black players. And when they came into it, they absolutely revolutionized uh, football there. And that, I think, was what, although they've had a lot of uh, very fine uh, players who weren't or aren't black, uh, th this, I think, was what really galvanized football there. Do you think that the, the Dutch team of 1974 was um, the unluckiest not to win a tournament? They were unlucky, and they probably... Uh, one of the things that probably counted most against them was that they got a great centre-half called Hulshoff, and he was injured, he couldn't play, and uh, they, they, they couldn't substitute him sufficiently. Right. And uh, so Bonhoff was able to brush past the... Uh, the Dutch defender to set up an absolutely vital goal, a uh, decisive goal uh, for Muller. And uh, Holshoff would probably have, uh, have stopped him. Uh, but um, uh, they're an extraordinary lot. They were a very dissident lot, you know. I mean, there was a possibility they weren't going to come at all. They, they rebelled uh, against the terms they'd been offered. and demanded more money, they were extremely yeah. dissident. Not. That's not the last time that's happened with the Dutch football team, is it? They've got a, there's a bit of a trait, isn't there, running yes, through there Dutch football? Yes, there is. They were, they hadn't, by the way, they hadn't contested the World Cup since before the Second World War. Oh, right, OK. And, um, but they had a magnificent uh, uh, player in Cruyff, and I thought they had the best player in, in, in the final, who wasn't... Uh, in that mould of total football mould at all, which was Van Hannigan, Van Hannigan the great big uh, left-footed uh, inside left. And I thought he was the best player on the field, better even than Cruyff or, uh, or Beckenbauer. Within barely a minute, they'd taken this lead when Cruyff just went right the way through the whole defence and was eventually brought down. Uh, and uh, it was a penalty. Yeah. And they scored from the penalty. And uh, then they, it looked... Some people had the rather arcane theory, that they may have been right, that the Dutch were still, you know, uh, smarting from the German occupation and wanted to make them look stupid. And so, although they, had a, uh, they were dominant in possession and far the better team, they didn't score another goal. Uh, Rep should have scored one uh, near half-time when Cruyff made it for him, but he made a mess of it and uh, Meyer saved and... Uh, Jones got away with it and eventually won. Sure. But they were two very, very good teams. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. In your book, you write that the 1978 tournament in Argentina left a sour taste and a welter of controversy. I mean, could you expand on that a bit, please? Well, I, I mean, I felt that uh, the Argentinians had, had got at the referees. I became very unpopular. Right. Um... I remember uh, there was a, the, one of my Palosha, who I used, I used to live in Florence, and he wrote in La Nazione, a Florentine paper, Brian Glanville, the most hated journalist <laughs> in the world, football world, is running true to form here. And uh, well, I had said that they'd got to the referee, 
And so the next game proved that he was absolutely right. Right, okay. I was a very unpopular figure for quite a time there, and the uh, public blasts against me and people refusing to talk to me and that sort of thing. Yeah. But there I was, was absolutely right, and there was some very strange goings on with the referees, uh, with the Argentinians. And there was quite a febrile political atmosphere in Argentina at the time, wasn't there? Well, there was. There had been this uh, one of the... One of the uh, Organizers, the uh, one of the generals had been blown up. Gold had left a bomb under his uh, under his bed, and he blew up. Well, the Dutch said afterwards it was unlikely that Argentina's team could have won the tournament anywhere but at home. Hmm. And uh, Giovanni Trapattoni, who was a great chum of mine, who was managing uh, Juventus at the time, attended the tournament. He went even further. He said he thought that elsewhere. Argentina wouldn't even have got through the first round. Right, okay. Because they had all the refereeing decisions going for them. And, uh, and the military dictatorship obviously wanted to get as much prestige out of it as, uh, as possible. That was under Videla, uh, the General Videla, who was, the, who was a chief of the dictatorship. And um, Amnesty International was very much against it, the, the tournament being played there. And thousands of people have disappeared, thousands have been murdered, a lot have been dropped into the sea, a lot have been tortured. And uh, it was a question of guaranteeing the safety of the players. But they were all right. Uh, it's only saying in Argentina the threat came from within. And uh, they just about finished the stadiums in time. But then they didn't have remotely the problems that the Chileans had had after sure. the earthquakes. I mean, to what extent do you think countries' human rights records should be taken into account when um, deciding on who hosts World Cups? It's very hard to say, because then you wouldn't have had the 36 Olympics in Germany, would you, either? Sure. Uh, I mean, in an ideal world, they would be. But we don't live in an ideal world, and uh, those criteria don't really seem to come into uh, consideration where the choices are made. What about the decision to award the 1994 tournament to America, which essentially uh, football was a minority sport? I mean, do you think that was justified? Well, I was thoroughly in favour of it. OK. Uh, I, 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 I supported it very strongly because I knew it would be an immense success because the Americans are sports snobs and I knew there had been huge crowds for the when, when they re recently uh, put on the Olympics in Los Angeles. And the soccer matches, there were huge crowds and they're sports snobs and they wouldn't go and see these jiggery-pokery little league teams that they had going at the time. But when it was a major tournament, they would turn up. And so I was absolutely convinced it would be a great success. And I think I was proved absolutely right. Crowds were sure. huge. Yeah, sure. Went very well indeed from that point of view. Sure. Do you think that um, the World Cup offers the viewers as much entertainment as it used to? I don't think so, uh, although, although you, you did have extraordinary results in the last World Cup, such as the 7-1 thrashing of Brazil and Belo Horizonte, which really eclipsed what happened to England in Belo Horizonte by the Germans. Yeah. Uh, football's become increasingly more defensive, you know, with two players up, one player up. I mean, when the Brazilians first won it, uh, uh, that was the introduction of 4-2-4, and then eventually it became 4-3-3. More and more, fewer and fewer strikers were used until now. Uh, so many teams play with only one of them. So I think it's much more defensive than it used to be. Yes.
And how has reporting on uh, World Cup tournaments changed over the years? What, like the experience of a journalist, is it, 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 is it radically different to what you used to be? It's got worse and more and more difficult. Why would you voice so, that? Uh, or I remember in the old days, uh, so, so I'm up in Rancagua in 62, just walking into the uh, Argentina dressing room before, uh, uh, after an England-Argentina game. And then by the time it came to Argentina, you couldn't even get into the press conferences. They were so absolutely packed. Right. So it's become more and more difficult. There's more and more journalists attending and less and less access. OK, so if we turn to the uh, 2018 tournament in Russia, who do you have down as favourites to win that? I think the Germans are probably have the best chance. Uh, they're, they're, they're a powerful team and they're, they're well organised and well managed. And uh, it's difficult to see any, any team which at the moment is more impressive. Though Belgium, unfortunately, England are in Belgium's qualifying group. The Belgium have two of the best players in the world, haven't they, in uh, Hazard and, uh, mm. and, and the young Manchester United, Manchester City lad. Uh, and uh, I, I, oh, De Bruyne. I, I... De Bruyne, yeah. De Bruyne, yes. And, uh, I think that uh, they, they, they would be very good outsiders, but I think the Germans possibly would be the, be the favourites. OK, and how do you rate England's chances? They've potentially got a very good team. A, a manager doesn't impress me at all. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they have any great real chance of winning the World Cup, but they could put out a very decent team. There are a lot of excellent young players. How, how would you describe the, the, the relationship between the media and the England team in the years that you were reported on the World Cup? Well, it's been variable. Uh, it, it was 58 of the journalists were sort of squeezed out by the hierarchy there. Uh, it was a sort of, England were playing, stayed in the middle of Gothenburg and one had the, you know, current impression of doors being shut in one's face, etc., etc. Nothing was really done to facilitate things. And in 62, the relations weren't very good. I remember Johnny Haynes saying to a group of English journalists, who was the captain, you want us to lose, which wasn't true. And nowadays, it's all much more stratified. I mean, in the old days, even under Ramsey, you see, Ramsey was basically quite anti-press. Uh, but you, you travelled on the same plane as the England, planes the England team, and you mix with your friends. I remember driving, flying thousands and thousands of miles with Franny Lee, who was a chum of mine. Mm. Uh, unthinkable today, they'd be different planes. The relations aren't good and uh, uh, <clears throat> the players aren't encouraged to be particularly cooperative. That was Brian Glanville. The story of the World Cup is out now, published by Faber. And if you're in the UK, you'll be able to follow this year's tournament on BBC TV, radio and online. Well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be talking about the history of BBC Arabic. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, 
which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.